uh, told myself I wouldn't do that. That's all right. Moving on. Okay, so um, one of the things that I was really reminded of, though, in the midst of this hard time is how hard Christmas can be for some people and how joyous it is, even on the other hand. It's full of joy and it's full of struggle. It's full of joy as a time of celebration, a celebration of Christ, a celebration of giving and giving, giving and give, receiving gifts. Man, I'm going to have a hard time today thinking about that. It's also a time of anticipation, right? Anticipating those gifts, anticipating the time of visiting with family and gathering with friends that we haven't seen in a long time. But it's also a time of remembrance. A time of remembrance of good days long past, of those who are no longer with us, whether that's by separation due to distance or because they're just not on this earth anymore. See, Christmas time can be a struggle, and Christmas time is full of joy at the same time. One way we tend to navigate Christmas is by establishing traditions. Uh, I, I believe we all have a tradition, whether we realize it or not. Uh, it may just be something that happened because we needed to get everybody together. In fact, that's one reason why traditions exist, is to gather our family and friends into one place. Also, tradi traditions do a couple other things. They facilitate us remembering those who aren't with us. And they keep us focused on the many blessings that we have experienced with them in our, their presence. See, traditions are typically not found to remember bad things. They are found to root us in the joy of the season. One tradition that I've started in our house and Beth and I have been really, uh, sometimes we're very good at and sometimes we're not, is reading aloud The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. And some of you might know that story, some of you because of the movie and some of you because of the, the book. The book is better. Um, but I want you to remember this story in light of these things. That is a story of redemption, a story of joy, a story of struggle, and a story of anticipation, particularly in the midst of gloomy and icy days. See, Mr. Beaver says it this way, it's always winter and never Christmas. For the first 11 chapters, that's all that you hear is that it's always winter and never Christmas. It kind of seems fairly hopeless. For those of you who've lived up north, you know what I'm talking about. When is spring coming? When is the, the, the snow going to melt? We only really know that that's coming when Christmas arrives. And the Narnians, they didn't real, realize that there was hope until they heard these words. Aslan is on the move. See, Aslan, the lion and the lord of Narnia, was returning to right the injustices that the icy white witch had done. So the reason I wanted to begin our Decembers with this story is to establish a couple things. To root my children's lives in anticipation for a coming king. Also to establish the reality that life is a bunch of struggles, trial upon trial. And also to establish that there is eternal joy because God is actively working in the midst of those dismal circumstances. See, we have many reasons to have joy in the struggle, 
And we have many reasons to find joy in the celebration. And that's what I kind of want us to look at and see from our text today. In fact, our text today is a call to worship in the midst of struggle. How awesome is that? Zephaniah 3.14, if you want to turn, turning your Bibles to that. Zephaniah 3.14 to 20 is all about the joy of God's glorious redemption in spite of the struggles of his people, in spite of the judgments that they are under. See, God, through the prophet Zephaniah, he's commanding his people to focus on the redemption and reconciliation they will have in the future with joy today in the midst of the struggle. And for us, it's much the same. That Christ's liberating love brings about overwhelming joy when you understand it. And this is because his presence is perfect and his glorious return is sure. So here's the takeaway for today if you're one who likes to write things down. Take joy in God's grace and sovereignty because he has taken away your sins and given you eternal life. Take joy in God's grace and sovereignty because he has taken away your sins and he has given you eternal life. And that's how our passage kind of breaks itself out. Verses 14 to 17 tell us to take joy in God's gracious presence. Take joy in God's gracious presence. And to take joy, verses 18 through 20 tell us to do this. Take joy in God's sovereign power. Take joy in God's sovereign power. With that, let's read Zephaniah 3, 14 through 20. If you would stand with me for the reading of God's word, that'd be great. This is Zephaniah 3, 14 through 20. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies, the king of Israel. The Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said of Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at the time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At that time, when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Let us pray. Oh, Father, clear our eyes this morning to see your word clearly. Lord, rend our hearts to see your glorious grace as far grander than we've ever seen it, more beautiful than we could ever know it. Without your help, Lord, we cannot see and we cannot hear. So Lord, open up our eyes, 
open up our hearts and open our ears to hear your word. For we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So before we move on, I just want to give you some context of Zephaniah. It'll help you understand why there's a call to worship at the end, at the end of a book. See, until the last sections of Zephaniah, the book prophetically proclaims the judgment of God upon the nation of Judah, who it's being written to, upon Judah's enemies, and upon the rest of the nations for this purpose. So to make sure that everybody realizes that no one will escape the judgment of God. No one can escape the judgment of God. But within the judgment, there are promises of hope. Promises particularly relating to the day of the Lord. And now I want to, I realize that the day of the Lord takes some heavy connotations here. So I want to take a few seconds and tell you what Zephaniah has to say about it. There are two facets in particular that Zephaniah tells us the day of the Lord has to it. That the unrighteous will be judged. We see this in chapter 2, chapter 3. But also that the righteous will be saved. And that's particularly in chapter 3, but you see it kind of sprinkled throughout. So that is the unrighteous will be judged and the righteous will be saved. That's what the day of the Lord encompasses. That he is coming in the future day when the Lord himself will show himself to be who he is and every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. But for some, that will be judgment. And for some, that will be salvation. The final day of the Lord will yield particularly a glorious repentance of people of all these nations. Not everyone, but those who repent and believe that he is Lord. And that kind of brings us to the end of the, the book of Zephaniah. And at the end, we have our text, which is, again, a call to worship God in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the judgment that he is proclaiming upon them. And so this is what I want us to see from this first point. In verses 14 to 17 say that we should take joy in God's gracious presence. Take joy in God's gracious presence. So we see these four, four commands here. Sing, shout, rejoice, and exalt in verse 14. He says to do this with all your heart. Why? Because their heart has been split up until this point. It has been split against worshiping the stars and seeking after violence. It has been after committing fraud, just all in the name of making a name for themselves. We see this back in chapter 1. See, Zephaniah tells the kingdom of Judah to sing, shout, rejoice, and exult in the midst of this bad news of judgment because God is going to deliver them. Their joy and exclamation must come from somewhere outside of themselves. Why? Because all of their works have brought them to this point, right? They've brought them to the point of judgment. One guy says it this way. You know, the only thing that you contributed to your salvation was your sin and the need of a savior. They were realizing this at the end of this prophecy, even in the midst of Josiah's reign, which this book was written in. Remember Josiah, he basically renovated the temple. He retrieved a lot of the temple worship. He found the Torah and ripped his clothes when he realized what he had done, what the, the nation had been doing. 
which is not worshiping the Lord according to his word. But in the midst of that, God is still telling them that they will be judged for their actions. But God, their covenant Lord, is telling them to rejoice. How? How can they? They were just shown the depths of their sin and their helplessness. In the midst of it, they undoubtedly felt despised and detested. How can they sing to God and rejoice in him under judgment? That's because what we see in verse 15, that God's grace removes the penalty of sin for his people. God's grace removes the penalty of sin from his people. That's why they can rejoice. That's why he tells them, sing, shout, rejoice, and exalt. See, the Lord has taken away the judgments against them. The Lord has cleared away their enemies. Here we see the good news of joy and grace for God's people, even though they experience and will be experiencing the hardship of judgment in the near future. See, eternally speaking, their salvation has been secured so utterly, so concretely, so perfectly and concisely because God's grace has done away with their judgments. See, them, but we have to realize that this is future work, right? This is future work that God will do because he's already said, I'm bringing people to judge you. God's work in the future is so sure that his people may rejoice even now in the face of that coming judgment. See, his grace is so extensive that he will blot out their transgressions. He will remove their iniquities and clear away the consequences of their sins. See, this is God's special grace for his people. This is a blessing for his people alone. And this is the primary reason for his command for them to rejoice in him. It is their grace, his grace, that helps them anticipate his work in the future and take joy in today. And in a lot of ways, this is the same for us today, living in between the two advents of Christ. See, God's grace in sending his son, Jesus Christ, as a baby to grow up and only to die after living a perfect life as a ransom for his bride, as the propitiation, the satisfaction of the wrath of God and the removal of the penalty of sin. That is the grace that we stand upon now. Pay particular attention here. The audience of this letter is not the Moabites, the Amorites, or any other ites. It's Judah, his particular people. That does not mean that salvation does not come to those people, but that salvation is for the repentant ones. Those who believe in God alone will be saved. It tells us that these promises are particular to those who are righteous in God's eyes that have been retained, unstained, and fettered to the grace of God by his hand alone. And we know that this is true for us. We know that those who would believe because of the grace of Christ and his work on our behalf as our substitutionary atonement will blot out our transgressions and have removed, has removed our iniquities. And for that, we should all take joy in Christ's gracious presence in our lives because he single-handedly worked out divine grace for us to save us from our own sinfulness and rebellion. Now, this might seem foreign to you if you're not a Christian. In fact, if you're not a Christian, welcome. I'm glad you're here. Christians, I'm glad you're here too. But 
I want you to hear me. That until you repent and believe that Jesus is Lord and he is the savior of your life, that you fall upon his mercy and say, Lord, save me, you are under the judgment, the same judgment as Judah was. But God's grace can remove the penalty for your sin. God's grace removes the penalty of sin for his people. But not only are we to take joy in Christ because of God's grace, but also because God's presence. His presence enables us to take joy even during struggles. Notice this in 15, the second half of 15, all the way through 17. He says, the Lord, the King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. And again in 17, he says, the Lord God is in your midst. This is reason to rejoice. He is in their midst. He won't future be in their midst. He hasn't left them. He will not forsake them. See, God's grace motivates his people to praise his name, but God's active presence provides them the joy of their salvation. This is a direct refutation in some ways of what has already been said in chapter one, verse 12. See, some were saying that God was not amongst them. Look at all the judgment they were getting upon them. He did not care for them. And in fact, they were just proving themselves to be enemies as in the enemies of Psalm 42. But Jesus says to us, who should fear the one that can kill the body and not kill the soul? No, the people of God must not fear any enemy because God is, has defeated every single one of them. He is in our midst. He has completely removed the penalty of sin. He has removed the consequence of death and his gracious presence provides us the joy of our salvation. But it's not merely the defeat of death that we are to rejoice in. It is this promise of his presence, no matter the circumstance, that we should be rejoicing in. It is the thing that pulls us through the struggles and provides us joy in the celebration. See, it is the promise of God to his people that should enliven us to praise his name. It's not what, yeah, his work is great. Let me, let me be very clear here. His justifi justifying work in, on the cross was great. His presence with us now is better. It is that justification on the cross that saved us and brought us to him. And now that he keeps us with him that we have hope and we can praise his name in the midst of struggles. For if he just paid for our sins and left us to languish through life, what would we have to rejoice in? Nothing. But God's presence is what gives us the chance to praise his name. It is that same promise that we have and must rely on. We've been singing it all morning. Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the Lord in our midst, the mighty one who saves, the deliverer who is with his people by his indwelling spirit. We need not fear any enemy. We do not need to fear the consequence of our sin. For God is with us, he has saved us, he is saving us, and he will finally save us in his second coming. We are to take joy precisely because this hope of glory, that our joy is in Christ Jesus, and his presence is with us at all times.
I want us to notice something, though, before we move on. That God has not placed a parameter on his presence. He has not said, if you do this, then I will be with you. No, if you are in him, if you are a part of his body, if you are his child, he promises his presence despite your sin and rebellion. He promises that the same sin that committed you to judgment prior to being saved will be the ultimate reason why he comes and saves you. Your belief is predicated upon his presence and your life. And your heart being regenerated is the reason why you can praise his name. Does that mean that we can continue to sin? Does that mean that we can continue to move and act as we used to? Because God's with us no matter what, right? Free grace. No. We are to live a life of repentance. Because God's presence gives his people courage for a number of endeavors. Particularly that of identifying and killing sin. His presence helps us to identify and kill sin in our lives. His presence also helps us focus our hearts on eternal joys. Because as we kill sin, we realize how great God is and how great God is is the reason why we can take joy. And externally, his presence helps us to live according to that truth. Helps us to live according to his grace. See, God's presence allows us to identify and destroy those sinful motives within us because it shows us who we are, who we really are in relation to him. We are God's people, yet we still have sin in our lives. See, when things come at us, yes, God has done away with the consequence of our sin, but God is renewing us, right, every day, saving us in a way that it says that we are getting our sin removed from us. And here's how you know. You have the option, Christian, you have the option to act out of a sinful motive. But you have the grace to act out of godly motives. Those who have not been saved act sinfully in pure, that's just all they do. They can't help it. But those who us have been saved and are being saved and will be saved have the option to act out of godliness. So you can't blame the, your neighbor for making you angry. That's what that means. You can't blame your spouse for making you angry or for giving you more chores to do or any of those things that just drive you insane. That's your, that's inside of you. Own it. That's your heart posture. You still have the option to act out of the godliness within your heart. So let me exhort you quickly. God's presence allows you to identify and destroy those sins, to live in harmony with those who you are around, and to act out of the godliness of your hearts. But let me caution you at the same time that ignoring the presence of God's grace will lead to you harboring sin that will reap promised judgment. And why do I say that? Because those who harbor sin and do not quickly repent when they have been shown sin, we don't know if they're actually Christians. We only know you're a Christian by your fruit. 
We only know you're Christ, you are a Christian, but we are Christians, brothers and sisters, who go to one another and ask for forgiveness. We're only the ones who realize that the Lord has taken away our judgments and freely walked to our brothers and sisters and said, forgive me, I have sinned against you. Or to go to their brothers and sisters and say, I need you to repent of your sin. You will reap promised judgment if you do not, or if you ignore the presence of God's grace in your life. But if you are in Christ Jesus, hear me, hear me, the good news is that you can sing, that you can shout, that you can rejoice and exalt with all your heart, that the Lord has taken away your judgments and that his grace has enabled you to see him as more glorious than your sin. See, you are Christ's bride, the father's child, and you have no need to fear your sin. Confess it freely. Know you are forgiven. Know that you can be reconciled with your brothers and sisters. Know that he is gracious and merciful. That that mercy is one of our rewards of God's presence. But notice, verse 17 gives us these other rewards. That God rejoices over you with gladness. He quiets you with his love. And he exults over you with singing. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine this? That he looks at you through Christ Jesus and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. That is what we should all long to hear. See, Matthew Henry says it best. He says, he loves to love his saints. He loves to love his children. And this is never more evident by when he makes us his masterpiece, his workmanship, as he makes us into his image, the image of Christ Jesus. Why? Because Christ is the fullness of the love of God. He is love incarnate. And in him, we see the extent of that love and his delight in his bride, the delight that he has for his children. See, Ephesians 3.19 tells us the extent that the love of Christ surpasses all knowledge. That Romans 5.8 shows us this fullness. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He has taken away your judgments. Ephesians 5.25 tells us the delight and just demonstrates how great this delight is. So much so that Christ upholds and cares for his bride no matter what. So as his bride, let us rely on Christ's presence. Let us rely on his grace in your life. Not the knowledge of your sin in yourself. That will continue to continue. That will continue to guilt you. Know that your sin is there and know that the Lord has taken away your judgments. This will give you joy. This will give you courage in the struggles of life. So it's on this basis of God's grace that his grace has taken away sin's penalty and that his presence in your lives gives you joy. That we are to take joy in God's gracious presence because he has taken away your sin. As we come to our second point found in verses 18 to 20, we come to the truth of the matter. That we cannot take joy in God's gracious presence 
without God's sovereign power. We cannot take joy in God's gracious presence without God's sovereign power. Thus, we must take joy in his sovereign power. If you haven't heard me say it again, I'm going to say it again. Take joy in God's sovereign power. Do not fear his sovereign hand. See, verse 18 gives us just a taste of this testimony of his sovereign power. He says, I will gather. Notice we went from he will, Zephaniah telling the people, to God speaking. I will gather those who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. See, his display of power is for a purpose. It is to restore the people's worship of him. It is to give them praise in the midst of their suffering. This is motivation for us to praise his name. But notice there's also two kind of sets of I will statements here. I'm going to summarize them into two groups of promises. This first group of promises comes in the form of his I wills to destroy earthly, the earthly oppression of his people. His first promise is in his I wills is to destroy the earthly oppression of his people. Notice in verse 19, he says, I will deal with all your oppressors. I will save the lame. I will change their shame into praise. He says, I will deal. I will save. I will change. All to display his sovereign power over the earthly oppression of his people. To give them joy even when they lack the festival. To enable their worship even though the temple is not going to be there and they won't be in the land. See, no physical illness, no pain, no external oppression or, or persecution, nor internal shame will be able to stop the praise of his grace. He is powerful over all earthly enemies of his saints. He is jealous for their praise and he will make a way for his name to rise above every other name. And that brings us to the second set of promises. See, in the second set of promises, as I wills, point to God's sovereignty to produce that joyful praise that he commands in verse 14. Notice in verse 18, he already had, I will gather. But in verse 20, he says this, at that time, I will bring you in and I will make you renowned and praised. Have you not noticed the utter outworking of God's hand? It is single-handed. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with him and his grace and the praise of his name. Here we see that, the God, that God promises to enable the praise that he commands by first bringing his elect people to himself, then by gathering them into one perfect body, and finally by making them the object of the world's praise. Now how can that happen in the midst of judgment? He says he's going to deal with it. That's how. That's the only way it's going to happen. That he has already removed their judgments, cleared away their enemies, so that they might praise his name regardless of what or is going on about them. See, he already has set his love upon his people. This is not the first time he's heard this. In fact, if you read every prophet, in some, at some point they will say something similar to this. See, he set his love upon his people at the time of Abraham. He affirmed his covenant love with all of the patriarchs and guaranteed that that love would continue through the line of David no matter the trials or struggles that his people would go through. 
They were what Zechariah 9.16 describes as the jewel of God's crown. See, we see that this is still true for us today. Mark 13.37, John 6.44, a whole host of others tell us that he's presently bringing his people to himself. Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, tell us why. He's doing it for the praise of his glorious grace. Ephesians 2, 10 tells us for what purpose. Not just the praise of his glorious grace, but to make God's people his workmanship, his treasured possession in Christ Jesus. Ultimately, Christ Jesus and us being found in him is the end of this promise. See, Christ Jesus is God's promise, I will. Galatians 4.4 tells us that he sent, he, God, sent forth his son. Why? 1 Corinthians 15.3-4 says that Christ died, was buried and raised. Ephesians 1.10, so that all things, in all things, he, they would be united in him. Christ is the final revelation of himself. The final revelation of his glory, of his love, of his grace, of his mercy. Mercy. See, God's desire to be worshipped is above all other things. And Christ is the final speech, the only heir, the radiance of his glory, the exact imprint of his nature, as Hebrews 1, 2, and 3 tells us. Christ is the means by which we see God's sovereign power reign over all things. He is still putting his enemies under his footstool. And it is his work in the past that makes his future work sure. It is the mechanism of his grace bringing, being brought to the world. The Lord's work, again, the Lord's work of the deliverance of his people promises the final end point of the sufferings of his people. It is his work that will finally give us the joy of our salvation. It is finally his work that will give us life in Christ. So we are to take joy in God's sovereign power. We are to take joy in God's gracious presence because he has removed your sins. Then he has given you life. By his sovereign hand, let us take joy in Christ who is God's final self-revelation his presence, his grace, and his power. For he has bound up your wounds. He has removed your enemies. He is our treasure and our great reward. Let us celebrate this season and every other by singing his name, by anticipating his final coming, and remembering his past work and present promise of glory. Let us go to him now.